Well, good morning, everybody, and again, welcome to Hawaii Kite Church. Uh, we're so glad that you're here with us to worship our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Uh, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31. This can be found on page 882 in the Bibles that are under your seats. Again, our passage of study this morning is Luke chapter 2, verse 31 to 38, on page 882 in the Bibles under your seat. Luke 22, 31 through 38. Now, before we read the passage, would you please bow your heads with me as we open our time in a word of prayer? Father, again, we come before you this morning humbly asking that you would speak to us, that you would help us, Lord, to understand your word, and that through that, Father, you would change us. You would continue to make us more into the image of your son, Jesus, that you would draw our hearts closer to yourself and that you would help us. Lord, we need you so much. We humbly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 38 says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you this, that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Now, before we jump into our passage this morning, let me just give you a little bit of context. Uh, in our passage today, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples celebrating the Passover supper. He knows full well that this will be his last night uh, of his earthly life. In just a few short hours, Jesus will be arrested, unjustly tried, tortured, and eventually crucified on a cross, and his disciples are going to be scattered. And as we learned from last week's sermon, Jesus' disciples, uh, they're mostly ignorant and certainly unaware of the severity of the trials that are coming. Here they are on the last night that they have with Jesus their Lord, and they were arguing amongst themselves on who was the greatest. We learned that last week. And so even to the very end of his life, Jesus continues to teach the disciples and to try to prepare them for the suffering that awaits. And I think that we're going to see in our passage this morning this loving care that Jesus has for his prideful, self-seeking, and often ignorant followers. And that in spite of all their weaknesses, he truly loves them, cares for them, prays for them, and suffers for them until the very end. Look with me at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, 
Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, it's in this verse that we get a glimpse of the unseen struggle that takes place behind the heavenly curtain, so to speak. Satan, the adversary of mankind, is demanding that he allowed to be not only sift Peter, but all of the disciples like wheat. For when Luke says Satan demanded to have you, the word for you is plural, as in you all or all of you. Satan is targeting Peter, but his intention is to go after all of Jesus' disciples. And so the very first thing that literally jumps out at us from this passage this morning is that there are cosmic, supernatural forces at play in this world, and they are opposed to the Christian. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan has already taken Judas. Now he's after Peter. But his ultimate goal is that he wants all of the disciples. He wants all of us. We have an enemy who from the very beginning tempted and deceived Adam and Eve in the garden and brought about the downfall of all of mankind. He is, according to John 8, a murderer who does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And his greatest act of deception is to make you and I forget that he's there. He tries to convince us that he's not real and to deceive us into thinking that he's not that bad. But remember, he disguises himself as an angel of light. But make no mistake, Satan is very, very real. And we must remember that there is a spiritual aspect to all of our struggles and that even when we are engaged in warfare with our co-workers, bosses, neighbors, family members, in-laws, children, and even our spouses, that our battle is not only against flesh and blood, but there is an enemy, his demonic forces that are at work desiring nothing more than to kill and devour and destroy. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every trial, every bad relationship, every bout of suffering is caused by Satan or some kind of demonic attack. We are sinful people living in a sinful, fallen world, and that alone should be enough to bring all kinds of bad things into our lives. But with that said, even though Satan and his demonic forces may not be directly responsible for every evil thing in your life, we cannot dismiss or forget the fact that he exists and that he hates us and that we are in a real spiritual battle and we must be ready to fight using spiritual means. Now take heart, Christian. God has prepared his children for this battle, and he has given to you and to me his full armor to protect us from the evil one. And you can read more about this in Ephesians chapter 6, and I encourage you to do so. God has also given to us assurances in James 4 that when we submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, that Satan will flee. And in 1 John 4, we are told that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus in us 
is greater than Satan who is in the world. And this is the key to our ultimate protection and victory. Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Do you have Christ living in you? The the Apostle Paul uh, exhorts us in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Do you have Christ living in you? If so, you have a living Savior who lives within us and prays for us. And aren't you glad he does? For as we will see in our passage this morning, Satan wants to sift Peter. And if he could, sift all of us like wheat. Now, as you probably know, sifting wheat is done to separate the good grain from the chaff. In biblical times, sifting wheat was done by shaking it violently through a sieve or a large strainer. It was tossed up in the air. It was shaken to and fro. And the chaff, the dirt, and other impurities would separate from the good, usable grain. Hence, the imagery here is that Satan wants to shake the disciples apart break them down, testing them, trying to prove that their faith was false, that they were just like chaff. And he's going to do this by violently rocking their world. Now again, I want to remind you, Christian, to take heart because in spite of Satan's vehemence towards us, Our God is sovereign, all-powerful, and he is in control of all things, including Satan himself. Notice that even though Satan can make demands, he can only do what God allows him to do. God is never threatened. He's never hurt, never taken by surprise by any of Satan's schemes. Rather, God will providentially direct all things in the universe, even Satan himself, to accomplish his good, acceptable, and perfect will for his glory and our good. God is in total control. And this is what we see in our passage this morning. Look at what Jesus says to Peter in verse 32. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, in the face of an imminent attack on Peter by the devil himself, notice that Jesus doesn't stop uh, Satan from sifting Peter like wheat. He could easily have done so, couldn't he? Of course he could. Rather, he does for Peter something far more important. Jesus prays that Peter's faith may not fail. Now, if you knew that Satan were going to attack one of your loved ones, how would you pray? I know how I pray, because this is what I do all the time, that God would protect my family, Lord. Please stop Satan in his attacks that you would please deliver my family from his evil. Now, there's nothing wrong with this, and I'm not going to stop praying this way, but in studying this passage this week, I started to realize that I need to add more to my prayers. If Jesus prays for Peter that his faith may not fail, then we can be absolutely sure that this is exactly what Peter needed most and what we need most as well. 
And this should help to inform us in how we pray. Not necessarily that we just don't go through any trials, but that when we do, our faith would not fail. Now, why do you think that is? Why is faith so important? Well, as most of you, as Christians know, your faith is everything. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6. For by grace you have been saved by faith, Ephesians 2.8. We obtain the righteousness of God through faith, Romans 3.22. We are justified by faith, Romans 5.1. And it is by faith that we are able to extinguish the fiery darts of Satan, Ephesians 6.16. If you take away our faith, you take away everything. Faith is like the lifeline that connects us to Christ. Christ died on the cross for our sins, and faith is what connects us to the salvific power of the cross. Christ is our anchor that keeps us steady in the midst of storms, and faith is the lifeline that keeps us connected to that anchor. Christ is our source of power and strength, and faith is the lifeline that plugs us into that power source. If you can prevent that lifeline from connecting to Christ, you can keep that person from Christ himself. And so isn't that what you think the devil wants most, to destroy your faith? But when that faith is there and that lifeline is real, then the man or woman who lives by faith can do almost anything. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read about those who suffered tremendously but were, but were persevering and persevered by faith. It says they were tortured, suffered, mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and the author of Hebrews says that all of these, of whom the world was not worthy, were commended through their faith. Is it any wonder then that Jesus doesn't just pray for Peter's protection, nor does he simply pray that Satan would not sift him like wheat. Rather, he prays for what is most important, that Peter's faith, his lifeline, would not fail. And then notice Jesus' very next words. And when you have turned, not if you turn, but when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows that Peter's faith will be severely challenged, but it will not fail. And so after he has passed through this fiery trial and has turned back to Christ, Jesus knows that Peter will be able to help strengthen his brothers as they go through their own fiery trials as well. Who better to help someone walk through the valley of the shadow of death than someone who has already gone through it and has come out on the other side realizing that the shepherd was walking alongside him the entire way? Now, there are those of you in this room, I know, who have done exactly that. You've suffered through deep, dark valleys. And because you have, you know something about the grace, mercy, and comfort of God that a person who has not yet walked through that path can only imagine and just dread. But you know intimately and personally the comfort 
in the grace of God through that trial. And you can now help strengthen your brothers. You see, there's some things that you can only truly learn in the crucible of suffering. And I think this is what Jesus needed Peter to learn. Peter, the rock upon whom Jesus would build his church such that even the gates of hell would not prevail against it. This rock needed to have a faith that would not fail. And so just like metal that needs to be superheated almost to the melting point in order for it to be tempered and strengthened, Jesus must allow Peter to go through this crucible of fire to strengthen his faith. But that's the future, Peter. In our passage this morning, Peter had not yet learned this lesson. He had yet to walk through his valley, and so we find him still trusting in himself and in his own strength. Look at verse 33 and 34. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, Peter's pride, his overestimation of his, himself, as well as his underestimation of the devil, is on full view here. Rather than tremble at the prospect of Satan's attack and asking Jesus for more strength, Peter boldly declares, I am ready. Now, we read this and might think, how foolish. But again, we need to realize that these are the words of a man whose faith had not yet been truly tested. You see, up to this point, Peter's faith was based on him being an eyewitness of Christ's miraculous power, hearing from Jesus' own mouth his authoritative words and experiencing every day the protection and provision of Jesus, the Son of God. And not only this, but on two occasions earlier in the book of Luke, we read about how Peter was sent out with the other disciples and given power and authority by God over demons, as well as the miraculous ability to heal the sick. Now, riding on the success and fame of Christ, they were welcomed into homes, they were fed, they were taken care of as they preached the kingdom of God from town to town throughout Israel. And so you could say that up to this point, although their lives were by no means easy, Peter, as well as the other disciples, were only accustomed to having ministry success as Jesus was protecting and providing for them every step of the way. And in that kind of controlled environment, it's very easy to start thinking that our successes are from our own doing rather than seeing what they truly are, gifts from the Lord. And so in our overconfidence, our dependence on God begins to wane, and we quickly find ourselves in danger, possibly even overestimating our ability to resist sin and the temptations of the devil. That's what overconfidence does. It's not hard to imagine that this is what happened to Peter. However, however, within a matter of hours, all of that is going to change. And Jesus now informs Peter of the tragedy that is to come. Before the rooster crows, Peter, before tomorrow even dawns, you will have denied me three times. Peter, who was so bold, so brave, and his spiritual pride was immediately brought back down to earth. His overconfidence shattered, and his faith was starting to be tested. And this should be a lesson for us all. 
be careful not to overestimate our own wisdom and strength and at the same time underestimate Satan's attacks upon us. When Peter's focus was upon his own strength and readiness, he was setting himself up for a tremendous fall, and we need to learn from his mistakes. But there's another lesson, I think a more important lesson from this passage that we should take to heart, and that is Jesus prays for us. He prays for us even though he knows we will fail him. Peter will soon deny Christ three times, and Jesus knew this. But this didn't stop our Lord from interceding on Peter's behalf. You know, Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan constantly accuses the Christian day and night before our God, and he has good reason to do so, doesn't he? He sees us, even in our most secret sins. He sees us at our worst But John tells us in 1 John 2, 1, that even when we sin, we, believers in Christ, have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, which means that that Jesus stands before the Father, and when Satan rightly accuses the Christian of our sins before God, Jesus stands up for us as our legal helper, our advocate, and he declares, I have died for this one. I paid the penalty for his sin by my blood. Though we be guilty before God, Jesus took our guilt upon himself and paid for our sin with his life. And now, as we're told in Romans 8.34, Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And in Hebrews 7.25, we are told that he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is praying for every Christian, just as he prayed for Peter. And therefore, the lesson is this. Although your faith may be tested by fire, though you go through trials and tribulations and may even fall into terrible sin as Peter did, we must remember that we have a Savior who is praying for us. Philip Ryken, he puts it this way, and I quote, If only we could see Jesus on his knees... And listen to what he is saying to the Father. What courage we would take to live for him through every trouble in life. So imagine this. The next time you're struggling, the next time you are in despair, the next time you are in pain, Jesus is praying for you. So take courage, my brothers and sisters, because our Savior says to us, as he did to Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But even though his faith would not fail, Peter's life was definitely about to change. The life of relative ease, security, and safety in the presence of his Lord and Savior was about to end. Change was coming. And not only for Peter, but for all the disciples as well. And so Jesus now turns his attention to all of them. Look uh, look at verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. And he said to them, but now, 
Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now back in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out his disciples to take the message of the kingdom of God from town to town. And at that time, Jesus commanded them to take nothing with them on their journey. Instead, they were to trust in the Lord completely and depend upon the hospitality and generosity of others. But now, Jesus says, the situation has changed. Things are going to be different. From now on, you need to prepare for yourself, your own provision, and even protection, because opposition to Christ is going to get fierce. Bring your money bag and your knapsack, and don't expect people to open their homes to you anymore, for as Jesus warns them in John 15, the world is going to hate you because it hated me. They will persecute you because they persecuted me. This is the world in which we now live. Now, it's important to note that when Jesus says to sell your cloak, to buy a sword, he's not advocating some kind of violent crusade. This is uh, not a verse to be used to support the Second Amendment. But we'll see, uh, as we'll see in an upcoming sermon, just a short time later, uh, when Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter will strike the high priest's servant with a sword, cutting off his ear, to which Jesus cries out, no more of this. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. And by saying that, we understand that clearly Jesus never intended his disciples to use the swords that they brought. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He doesn't advocate or condone violence. Instead, he's using the sword as a metaphor, as a lesson to warn them and prepare them for the seriousness of the difficulties and the battles that lay ahead of them in this harsh and oppressive world. Now, some commentators say that Jesus called for the purchase of swords in order to fulfill uh, the scriptural prophecy spoken of in the next uh, verse, verse 37. And although there may be some truth to this, I don't think that the the, the next passage is really uh, what that's all about. I don't think it has anything to do with swords. Rather, Jesus knows that tough times are coming and that his time with the disciples is very, very short. So one final time in verse 37, as we'll read in just a moment, Jesus is going to give his disciples the ultimate reason for their faith and the true source of their hope. Look at, let's look at verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now in this very short verse, the scripture passage that Jesus is referring to uh, is found in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Isaiah 53, as many of you know, is a prophecy about the Messiah, the Savior. And in this famous chapter of Isaiah, we learn that the Savior did not come to earth as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant who would die for the sins of his people. And so what Jesus is doing in bringing up Isaiah 53 in this very short verse, he's helping the disciples to begin to see, do you see who I am? This scripture is fulfilled in me. 
We are told in Isaiah 53 that the Savior would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and through his wounds we would be healed. He would be stricken for the transgression of his people, and it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief, so that he could make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. And then at the end of this great chapter, it says this in verse 12, and this is what Jesus is quoting. It says this, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is telling his, his disciples, this is me. I am your Savior. I am the suffering Savior. And I think we need to understand this, that Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He suffered for them. And he's numbered with the transgressors, not because he sinned or did anything wrong. The reason Jesus is numbered with the transgressors is because he took all of our sins upon himself. He did this out of obedience to his Father and because of his great love that he has for his people. But once he did that, once he took our sins upon himself, he was counted as a criminal, a transgressor before a holy, righteous, and just God. And thus it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He had to pay the penalty for our sin. And notice at the end of verse 12 of Isaiah 53, I'll read it to you. It, it again says this, he makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, the suffering servant, lives to pray for his sinful, suffering people. Jesus knows our pain. He has suffered and gone through so much more than any of us ever will. And he therefore knows how to pray for you. And so it's in this one short verse, Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, which refers back to this magnificent chapter in Isaiah 53 that Jesus is trying to help his disciples. He's trying to help us to understand that the ultimate purpose of why he came to earth was to suffer and to die for our sins. Now, how do his disciples respond to this glorious truth? Well, look at verse 38. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. In one sense, from our privileged vantage point with 2020 hindsight, it's almost comical that the disciples are still thinking about literal swords. But really, if I was there, I'd be doing the same thing. Because it's almost as if they really didn't hear. More likely, they just didn't understand anything that Jesus was saying about him being the fulfillment of the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Under the circumstances, more than likely, this just flew right over their head. But I know, I know later on, they would understand. In fact, this is why Jesus promises the Holy Spirit in John 14, 26, when he said, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, you can almost imagine at some point in the future, post-Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit has been given, the disciples' minds just being blown open. 
as they remember things that Jesus said and taught, and everything begins to crystallize and fall into place. Oh my gosh, that's what he meant? They finally realize everything that Jesus went through and suffered for them. And herein lies our final lesson, and we'll end with this. For three years, while walking, talking, and living with Jesus, the disciples struggled with their pride, their self-sufficiency, their greed, their desire for greatness and recognition, and their sin. And this, in spite of the fact that they lived with Jesus, they heard his teachings, witnessed his miracles, made sacrifices for the sake of the cause, went out on missions. All that, and they were still ignorant of who Jesus truly was. But through it all, Jesus knew them. And in spite of him knowing every foible and weakness about them, he didn't regard them as the ignorant, prideful, fearful, self-seeking, hard-headed, stubborn band of brothers that they were. Instead, he loved them. He served them. He taught them. He protected them. He cared for them. He prayed for them. And finally, he died for them because he saw them for who they would become. And I believe Jesus sees us today the same way. He sees us in our pain. He sees us in our sin. And he prays for us that in spite of our trials and failings, that our faith would not fail. Brothers and sisters, this is your suffering, praying Savior. And he is worthy of your complete faith and trust and de devotion and obedience and love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for everything that you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, by sending him to die for our sins, to suffer so that we might be forgiven. We thank you that he lives within us. We thank you that he prays for us. We thank you, Lord, that because of that, we have nothing to fear. But I do pray, God, that we would not become overconfident, comfortable in everything that you have done for us, that, but that we would continue to depend upon you and you alone as we go through our lives today. Help us to learn valuable lessons from Peter. Help us to learn, Lord God, of all the things that you have done for us. We love you so much. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.